The great Norwegian explorer, Roald Amundsen, was the first to traverse the Northwest Passage. He was also the first to arrive at the South Pole. On one of these such expeditions, he actually took with him a homing pigeon in a cage, and when he got to the top of the world, he opened the gate up and the homing pigeon took off. Several days later and far away in Norway, one day his wife opened her front door and she stepped out on her front step and looked up and there she saw the homing pigeon circling above, above their house. And she knew, she knew what? She knew my husband is alive. We see in scripture that Jesus ascended into heaven and he left his disciples on earth. And he said, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And several days later, they were waiting there and they were praying. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit came in power. And as he came and he fell upon each person and they shared the Lord with each other, what did they know? They knew Jesus is alive. He had come. He had fulfilled his promise. Friends, he's been with us ever since as well. Jesus the Lord has been with his church by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit ever since. Luke's purpose in writing this book that we're reading and studying this year, Acts, Luke's purpose in writing is to share what Jesus continued to do in the 30 years following that ascension when Jesus returned to heaven. And in the main event of these first two chapters that we have studied the last several weeks has been the sending of his Holy Spirit upon that baby church and the empowering of them to do ministry, to touch the world around them, to share the gospel, expand the kingdom of Jesus on earth. And Luke's style is very interesting because he's so focused outward, he's, he's interested in what God's doing out there around the church, but then all of a sudden he'll take a moment and he'll tell you what's going on inside the church. It's kind of like a tourist who has gone to, say, Paris, France, and he's visited the Louvre, and he's seen the Mona Lisa, and he's gone to the Eiffel Tower, and he's snapshots, he's gone to the incredible cathedral of Notre Dame, and he's taken a picture, and as he's going about his tourism, what does he do all of a sudden at one point? Say it out loud, folks. Selfie. Don't tell me you don't take them because I've seen a lot of yours. (laughs) See, Acts 2, 42 to 47 is is the church's first selfie. I mean, it's been all about what God's doing out there, but all of a sudden they just turn the camera and they take a look at what is going on inside the fellowship. That's what this church or this uh, scripture of passage of scripture is all about. And I want to tell you what, in a a nutshell, what do we see here? We see what it looks like when a people group has been so, so incredibly taken by the freedom that they have in Jesus Christ. This this is the, the look of a community set free. They are free from all the worldly trappings. They don't care who belongs to what and what belongs to who. They bring it together. They share things in common. They are so excited about what happened in the previous days 
of their lives and the witnesses that they are of what Jesus has done for them. And now this coming of the Spirit of God upon them, they're set free. And so we have this incredible opportunity to study a church set free. You know, it's not hard to understand what's taking place here. I mean, it's not hard to understand it. What's hard is to translate it, isn't it? What's hard is to lift out of Acts 2, 42 to 47 and apply it to our context and our life. Many perhaps would read this description of church and say, well, who wouldn't want to be part of that church? But if we actually look beneath the romanticized, idealized view of it, we actually could see that maybe, maybe it would be hard to be part of that church. You see, when, when they defined church in their age and time, uh, they didn't have a lot of history to define by. This is the first church. When you and I hear the word church, we have a lot that defines that for us. We have history. We have denominationalism. We have constitutions and statements of faith and membership lists and protocols and procedures, manuals and organizational structures. And, and we've got a lot that defines what we bring to this thing called church. Some have suggested that maybe this was a, a community sort of patterned after the, the Qumran community where the Dead Sea was and they found the scrolls and, and it was sort of this kind of commune. But I think likely it was just a, a, a group of people that happened. I mean, it just happened so fast and all of a sudden this group of 120 was somewhere in the thousands and they would meet together and it, it was happening so fast they had no time to get organized. They just enjoyed so incredibly their freedom in Christ and this ordinary Christian community became extraordinarily empowered by the Holy Spirit. So what did they have if they didn't have a constitution and all the other things? Well, they had the apostles' teaching and they had the Holy Spirit freshly outpoured, and they had one another. Do you know, as I thought about that, I thought, we have all those. We have the apostles' teaching, and we have the Holy Spirit, and we have one another. The interesting thing about this scripture is that as we will study on from today and later in, in future weeks, we'll see that it wasn't long before the early church felt the need for all those other things as well. And so it would not be long before they would need a statement of faith that would define more of what, what is that apostle's teaching. They would need to define what is the divinity and the humanity of Christ and what is meant by that. They would have to define, well, who should be a church leader and who shouldn't? And what are the qualifications of an elder, a deacon, a pastor? And, they have, and who should go on the list where there is support given from the church's money to help with their living and so on? And who should be on this list? And, and what roles should spiritual gifts play in the body of Christ? And the list goes on. I mean, it would not be long before all of the things that would define church for you and I are defining the early church. F.F. Bruce says this, the pooling of property could be maintained only when their sense of the unity of the Spirit was exceptionally active. And as soon as the flame began to burn a little lower, the attempt to, uh, to maintain the communal life was beset with serious difficulties. You know, we're going to see those serious difficulties in a few weeks. The, the first big one is Ananias and Sapphira. Remember that story? Chapter 5. And then there's the, the problem, use the word groanings. Groanings begin to appear in the body. You know, the uh, groanings. 
That's what it is the word. It's the groanings begin to appear. What happens in chapter 6 of Acts? Well, the, the Greek-speaking people are being overlooked by the Hebrew-speaking people in the church, and they start to have inner conflict, groanings, complaints. And so we see that, you know, there, there's a wonderful season, a moment, a snapshot here, but it's, it's not a mature church yet. It's like a, a newborn baby, Right? like Steve and Jody have. A newborn baby, that little baby is perfect, but she's not mature yet. And, and she will grow in maturity. And so a couple, brand new couple, newly married, also is a good example, honeymoon. And on the honeymoon, it's, it's so wonderful. They're living off this incredible first love, riding the wave, but there will be days of hard realities where their love will be put to the test. Now, please do not hear me say that, well, that's what the church was like when the Spirit was outpoured and it was early, but, but you know, when, when you grow up, you put the Spirit of God aside and you get on with the real church. No, I'm not suggesting that for, the, for a moment. I mean, every church and every generation is, should be seeking and needing this fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit for us to do ministry the way Jesus would have us do it in our culture and time. So what our role and responsibility is this morning is to take a look at this passage of Scripture and lift out of it what it is that the Holy Spirit is all about in that place and transfer it to where we live and put flesh on it and, and clothe it in the way we live out our commitment to Jesus Christ. You see, the church was on uncharted waters every time they took a turn in the road. I mean, you and I in this church in the 21st century will come up against different things and we'll say, oh yeah, we can read about that in other churches or we can other, I've, I did that, I faced that in another church. Here's what we did. This church, every time the bend in the river took place, it was all brand new. There was no uncharted uh, waters. I mean, all, all things were new and so they looked to God. And God met them and led them. And that's the way any church of the Spirit needs to go. If we're going to be led by the Spirit, we need to have that kind of an attitude. Because God is a God who's on the move. So at the beginning, when we read, we say, it says they were meeting every day. Well, by the end of the book of Acts, they're meeting every week. At the beginning, we see them very dependent on the apostles. At the end, the apostles are still in Jerusalem and the church was fanned out all over the then-known world. At the beginning, we see uh, the saints bringing things and laying them at the apostles' feet as offerings, and then the apostles would figure out how to use that. And later on, we see that they were told, you, on the first day of the week when you meet, you bring the money you've set aside and give it as an offering. And then we see also that whereas they used to meet in the temple courts and in homes, now, now as they fan out because of persecution, homes was the primary place where they met in individual life groups. And so let's take a look at this scripture, and uh, I'd like to start by just defining what in verse 42 I will call core values of the early church. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. <clears throat> now, core values sounds rather business-like. Uh, Patrick Lancioni defines core values by saying the deeply ingrained principles that guide all of a company's actions and serve as its cultural cornerstones. And uh, that's a good definition to apply for us this morning in applying it to the early church. 
we might want to say that there's no deeply ingrained anything in a first brand new church, but actually that's not true because there's incredibly deeply ingrained grace principles that is upon every believer because they knew what Jesus Christ had done for them just two months earlier. And so there's this incredible core of people beginning with deeply ingrained principles. And that, those principles started to define the, the cultural cornerstone of the first church. What is the church culture like? Our church family has a church culture as well. And there are core values that we have in our church family as well that, that define who we are. If you can imagine somebody uh, sort of hanging out with that first church, in, in uh, verses 42 to 47, just somebody just sort of on the edge of the temple courts looking in, not participating in the teaching and the prayer and all that, but just kind of watching it happen. They would determine after a few weeks what verse 42 says. There's a people that's devoted to these things. The word means that they were continuing steadfastly in those four things, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. What would they determine? They'd say, man, I, I don't know a lot about that group, but I'll tell you, they make a lot of that apostle, those apostles. And boy, they listen to their every word because those were the men that were discipled by Jesus for three years. That's what they would determine. That's a core value of that group. And then they would, they would say, and you know what? As far as the fellowship thing goes, that sharing together of things and all that, that, they make a lot of that too. That's a core value. I mean, they share everything. They share meals. They share things. They share in ministry. And then when it comes to the breaking of bread and, and the common meal, I mean, they're in each other's homes. They bring things to the temple courts. They feed people that aren't even part of them. I mean, they share. And then finally, prayer. They'd say, you know, I don't know a lot about what they're saying, but they're, they're, they're praying they, they're committed to prayer. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, is if someone just hung out on the fringes of White Ridge Baptist Church for four weeks, for three months or whatever, what would they conclude are the core values of White Ridge Baptist Church? Would they arrive at something like these four core values? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. We did a little exercise a few weeks ago when we were on a staff retreat, and I asked the staff independently to define what are the real core values that you see in our church and what are the aspired to core values that you would like to see in our church. And when we put the two lists together, they weren't exactly the same, you see. That's one of the, the indications of something needing to be changed. Because the fact is that there's not a church on earth that has not in its own culture, been influenced by the culture that surrounds it. The culture of Canada and Winnipeg and everything that we have brought into the church has come from out there. And so we, we have all somehow valued something that is not pristinely, purely, absolutely built on the Holy Spirit's presence, the Word of God, and everything that God would want to see us value as a body of believers. So the point is that what do we do then if we have things that we really re recognize that we value, that maybe are displaced values, not exactly dependent on the scriptures and what God wants? What do we do? Well, it's called repentance. It, it means letting go of something in order to grab onto something better. 
I think we're always in that motion. We're always in that renewal. That's what the Spirit of God wants to do, is He wants to blow fresh wind upon His people at all times so that we are continually letting go of something that we've been deceived into thinking we need to have, comes from the culture around us that we were born into, into thinking and believing in the things that God has replaced them with that is the new creature in Christ Jesus we are. It's it's an ongoing thing. We identified seven core values, or sorry, five core values uh, seven years ago. And we, we had come to realize that we really didn't identify our core values. We identified core relationships that we value. We need to do the work of thinking through what our core values are. Someone shared it with me last week, this past week, that it's like, it's like the wedding vows that someone stands up before witnesses and recites. They've done the work of embedding in their vows what they want to value in their, in their married and family life. And so they embed in their vows, this is what I'm committing to. And one day comes along where I, I don't feel like loving you like that anymore. Or, or you know, I don't, I don't see you that way. I don't want to serve your needs. Does that mean they stop doing it? No, of course not. And the ring on our finger reminds us what we vowed to because we value that. The early church as well came days when they said, I don't want to listen to the apostles' teaching. I hear what these guys are saying over here is a little more attractive. Does that mean they should jettison the apostles' teaching? No, of course not. Well, I don't feel like praying with the group corporately today. You guys go ahead without me. Well, no, that doesn't mean we should do that. And similarly, that's the way God calls us. Well, let's take a look at these four values um, quickly to look at how do we stack up with the early church? The first word that is attached to the word apostles is the word teaching. And the word in Greek is didak. It simply means teaching. It's the idea of everything Jesus passed on to the apostles was now the form and basis of reference for everything taught in the early church. It became so important. And why? Because can you imagine if there would not have been a standard set in the first century, where would we be today in the church without the Scriptures? The apostles' teaching, which we have essentially in the New Testament, where, where would the church be? What would be the standard of right and wrong and how we govern ourselves? You, you see, the, the, the word canon or standard or rule is what was the basis of what go, goes into the Bible and what was excluded from the Bible. And if, they're not, if there had not been a standard, a rule, by which things could be Holy Scripture and things could be not Holy Scripture, then, then we would be left to have no basis of deci deciding, judging on, well, is this heresy? Is this truth or not? And the Apostles' teaching was perhaps mentioned first because of this. You know, back in 1873, an archbishop by the name of, of Philotheos Bryennios was browsing in a library in, in Turkey in the Greek convent of the Holy Sepulchre in, in Istanbul. And he discovered, this is 1873, he discovered a manuscript that had almost been forgotten. I mean, it largely had been, it not had been touched in, in centuries. And he, and he opened it up, and they began to read it, and it, and it became known. It, it did not have a title. It became known as the didact, the teaching. And the reason it was called that is because it is the earliest copy of a, an existing document 
that, that talks about the practices of the early church. They guesstimate and, and, and assume that it must have been written as early as the late first century. This is the earliest document we have. So it wasn't written by the apostles, but maybe a generation or two after the apostles. What was the church doing? How were their core values being continued on? And it talks about and it explains worship practices, ordination, Lord's Supper, how to receive new converts into the fellowship. Some people say, next to the Bible, it is the single most important document for the, for the church today. And so here we have the apostles' teaching mentioned first, the very standard by which we measure all teaching. Secondly, we have the fellowship. And this word koinonia, have you heard, sure heard before, it has not to do with just, uh, you know, something you do with each other, but it, it's, a, it's an applied word to any context where you are doing life together. You're sharing it together. So they, they ate meals together, they did work together, they prayed together, and, and, and koinonia was the common word whenever something was done together. And so it's used a few times in this scripture. They, they ate together in, and shared in their homes. Again, let me quote from church history. This is a church historian from the second century, 200 AD, and he says this, Tertullian, he says, contributions are voluntary and are proportionate to each one's income. They are used to support, to bury poor people, to supply the wants of boys and girls who are destitute of means and parents, to help older people now confined to their houses, and such as have suffered shipwreck, or any who are in the mines, or banished to islands, or shut up in prison for their fidelity to God's church. So here is the early church, and somebody as a historian on the outside looking in and saying, well, they're still practicing these things, these acts of mercy in a different context and place. They are loving each other together. You're facing a problem. I'm doing better. I can do life with you. I'll lift you up. I can share my resources with you. Maybe it'll be my turn next time. Life together. It was the way they did it. Uh, breaking of bread is mentioned next, and most commentaries believe and agree that, that this breaking of bread meant both the common meal and the Lord's Supper. We get that indication in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Years later, when Paul is writing, he's saying that when you're eating your meals together, don't a bunch of you eat too much and others go hungry and, and, and then share the Lord's Supper as if you're all of one mind and unity. No, you know, share with each other. He's telling the church at Corinth that. So many believe that the, that the common meal was a part of also the Lord's Supper, and they just shared it together. And at the beginning, they shared it every day almost. They just said, this bread represents the body of Jesus. Remember two months ago, hung on the cross. I was a witness. I was there. This cup represents his blood. Let's drink in remembrance of that. Friends, we are free, set free by Jesus. Let's drink in remembrance. Let's not forget this, this event. It was not this special thing. It was, it was part of almost every meal. First, they did it almost every day. Later on in Acts, we see it every week. Our church practices it on a monthly basis. Paul instructs the church at Corinth, as often as you do this, whenever you do it, just make sure you do it in remembering Jesus Christ crucified. 
And then finally, they, they mention prayer. Uh, Luke says, they devoted themselves to prayer. I think it's interesting that in all four of these core values of the early church, we are not given a lot of detail of how they worked it out. And that's because probably that God did not want to lay down rules when these core values are transcultural. They, they supersede culture. They can be applied anywhere. And so there would be congregations that would devote themselves to prayer that would look and sound a lot different than a congregation some other culture that would be just as devoted to prayer. And if you've traveled a little bit around the world, I'll tell you, there's prayer meetings I've been in where I've been very uncomfortable. But I believe they are devoted to prayer because God wants His church devoted to prayer. Irenaeus, now again a church historian, second century, says this, the church does not perform anything by means of angelic intervention, invocations, other wicked curious acts, no, but by directing her prayers to the Lord who has made all things in a pure and sincere and straight, straight, straightforward spirit, they call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and she, the church, has been accustomed to even working miracles for the advantage of humankind. This is a church historian, someone outside of the church writing in the second century saying, this is the way I see them still devoted to prayer. And so it's incredible to see. I want to just take a moment to pause, and i got to talk about life groups. I have to tell you that I, I've been excited to see that slowly we are getting more and more able to involve newer people in life groups and in other Bible study environments quicker. It's, it's probably one of the biggest challenges that any church faces. If someone arrives new in a community or someone comes to new faith in Jesus Christ and they come to a service and they're strangers and it's hard to get in. We've got to continually make these feeder lanes, these, these collector lanes to try and find your way into the core of being part of the church so that people say, that's my church, I belong there, I'm connected, I have organic friendship, I have people that know what I'm praying about each day just as I am praying for them. That's the kind of fellowship koinonia that we are looking for and that's part of the purpose of life groups. And I think these four things that Acts 2.42 speak of are ideal in describing what we're after for life groups. You see, on every of those four fronts, we cannot do them well on Sunday morning. If your habit as a Christian is a once-a-week service like this, you're going to be lacking in certain ways. I mean, right now, what I'm doing is not dialogical at all. I mean, you could try talking back, but if, you know, if, if too many of us did that, we wouldn't get very far on getting through the sermon, so, so to speak. And, but in a life group where you're sitting with maybe 10 other people, I mean, you, you can really talk about what does the, the teaching of the apostles mean in this scripture? What is this, what is this all about? And if somebody gets off track, if, if they're just in their own little head and their own little brain and their own little web pages that they follow, and they get really kind of weird, you know, and they got a life group, they got somebody in that life group who's going to say, you know, I don't know what you've been reading, sister or brother, but, 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 you know, I see this in Scripture. That's good. And then when it comes to fellowship, well, what kind of fellowship do we have on a Sunday morning? I mean, Really sharing life together. I hardly know 
what you face this week. There's not a capacity for 375 people to kind of do that on a weekly basis, but, but break it down into life groups where you're connecting weekly, and you can pray intimately on frontline burner issues for each person. And I know someone's got my back when I go to that hard meeting on Wednesday. And when it comes to the breaking of bread, man, hospitality is a, a thing that, that our culture has been losing. I think that you spell love in almost every culture on earth by saying hospitality. Bring someone into the most intimate space you have and do the most intimate thing you do on a daily basis with them. That's what, that's what love is. That's what the early church was known for. Bring you into my home and eat my food with me and my family. That's, that's love. That's, that's just... And they're devoted to this. I mean, they're doing it every day. They're, they're committed to this. That's life-changing. That's radical. It's actually normal Christianity, but in, in a culture that we've become, it's, it's sort of looked upon as radical. And then the last one, that prayer thing. I mean, again, we, we heard three specific prayer requests this morning for individual needs, and then some other corporate prayer requests, and we had time to pray maybe, what was it, four or five minutes today? But in a life group, you can, you can set aside you can set aside 45 minutes and, and share needs and pray for each other and really get down to intercession for those things. I want to commend to you. I praise God that we've gotten about, I think it's 50 or 60 new people in the last year that have become involved in, in life groups. And we got a long way to go, but, but I would encourage you to keep pressing into us if you're, if you're feeling isolated. May God help us to grow as a church in this way. Well, we've got two more points to make, <laughs> and I'm going to tell you, the attitude of, uh, of the early church that led by the Spirit is, is actually very easy to sum up, and you can see it in your insert in your bulletin. It is summed up by awe and fear of the Lord, grace and generosity of spirit, joy and sincerity of heart. I want to ask you, where did that attitude come from? Where did it come from? It, it came from definitely being filled with the Holy Spirit. But I think if we go back even further than that, we see that it came from this group of people, as I said earlier in the, in the sermon, it was, it was just because they'd been set free. And, and it came from them understanding that they'd been set free. That's where this attitude of generosity and grace and, and the fear of the Lord came from. It was like they could not get over the fact that I mean, some of them witnessed Jesus' crucifixion just a month and a half, two months earlier. And if they hadn't witnessed it, somebody in the assembly of believers in that first church w would have witnessed it, and they told them about it. And, and they, they, they recounted the words of Jesus on, on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you see, instinctively, the Holy Spirit gave each one of those believers the answer to Jesus' question. The answer to Jesus' question was they themselves. Jesus Christ was forsaken by God the Father and crucified on the cross because of their sin. 
and the Holy Spirit applied that personally to them and they could say, I was part of the reason why God the Father turned his back on his son, his only son, at his most precious and important time of need. Incredible. And they could say as well, they could turn the question around and they personally, I mean personally and very intimately, they could say, my God, my God, why have you not forsaken me? They, could, they knew that they, they deserved to be judged in their sin. They deserved to be, to be crucified on that cross. They know how they have fallen short of what God wants for them. They've not even lived up to their own standards, much less God's. And they know that the answer to their question is on the cross. Jesus has not forsaken or God has not forsaken us because of the fact that he laid all of that on his son Jesus who was forsaken in our place. So here's the people that are set free. That's what we see. The attitude of a set free person is so different. They're not encumbered with all the trappings of life. They're just saying, how can I be a blessing to somebody else? That's an incredible thing. And then we see the fruit of this church led by the Spirit as they love one another, as they praise God, as they have favor with the people around them, and as they see the kingdom of God grow. I want to read a, a little excerpt of a book that Pat and I have been reading, and uh, I just want to have the worship team come as I'm reading this final quote. It's uh, from a book called Ordinary by Tony Merida, and here's what he says. Spiritual maturity isn't merely something you do with your mind. It's not about the books you read. It's not about the conferences you attend or speak at. It's about the life that you live. It's possible to listen to 10 podcasts weekly, to sing with the hottest bands and be in four Bethmore Bible studies, but miss the call to care for the least of these, and all the while live in a deceived state of thinking that you are actually mature. One of the saddest indications of failure in the area of justice and mercy is our description of those who excel in doing justice. We describe them as radical, extraordinary. Yet, as we read the Bible together, we find that the Bible treats issues of mercy and justice as anything but extraordinary. Frankly, doing justice is just as normal uh, a part of the Christian life. Ordinary is not a call to be radical. If anything, it is called to the contrary. The kingdom of God isn't coming with light shows and shock and awe, but with lowly acts of service. I want to push back against the sensationalism and the rock star Christianity and help people understand that they can make a powerful impact by practicing ordinary Christianity. The way of life isn't sexy enough for many in sub-Christian cultures. They are drawn to mega-conferences, mega-church pastors, and mega-controversies. And that's a problem, too. We need Christians focusing on ordinary Christianity, speaking up for the voiceless, caring for the single mom, restoring the broken, bearing the burdens, welcoming the functionally fatherless, speaking the good news to people on a regular basis, and all for sake of changing the world. May God bless you.